Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 36 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Paul's Ministry in Corinth, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, what we're going to see here in these verses is the origin of a very significant church in the New Testament, the church that uh, Paul planted in Corinth. And we have these two vastly significant epistles, First and Second Corinthians, and this is the story of where that church came from. But these 17 verses in particular give us an insight into two significant themes. First of all, the Apostle Paul as a man, as a human being, who could get discouraged, who could get weighed down, who could get weary of being persecuted, and who needed protection. And then secondly, the Lord who did protect him and sovereignly controlled the circumstances to keep him from being crushed and to orchestrate also the salvation of his elect people as yet unconverted elect in the city of Corinth. All of these things will flow from these 17 verses today. Well, let me go ahead and read them for us as we begin our time. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Andy, Corinth was a strategically located, prosperous trade city, but also a decadent one. What did Paul do when he first arrived in this great city? Yeah, this is one of the only two biblical places that I personally have visited. I've been to Athens and I've been to Corinth. And Corinth was at a, at a very narrow neck 
uh, land neck that connected the uh, southern, the Peloponnese, the southern part of Greece with the northern part, uh, Athens being in the northern part. And uh, in subsequent um, centuries, uh, they, I think in the 19th century, they built a canal so that you could go straight through. But uh, because of this geographical aspect, it was a, a very significant port city and lots of trade came in. It was a, a basically a sailor's town. And as a result, it was known for its its decadence. It was known for its great wickedness, its uh, prostitution, uh, its corruption, its idolatry. That's what Corinth was known for. Very close to Athens, not a long distance at all, less than an hour drive. Um, and so Paul left Athens and came to Corinth. And he left. Um, the most recent experience that we read about in chapter 17 is after his debate with the, with the philosophers on Mars Hill. And, you know, that had gone generally poorly. Uh, for the most part, they mocked him and were not interested. And Paul says uh, very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I think the idea is I pushed away from any desire to please the philosophers. And not that he was doing that in Athens. I don't think he was. But more than ever before, he saw the only thing that's going to convert these people is the simple, clear proclamation of Christ and him crucified. So that was his condition as he came to the critical city of Corinth. Who were Aquila and Priscilla, and what does Luke tell us about them as we begin this passage? They were two of Paul's great friends in his life. You think about his entourage and his friends, the people that he would greet, and they they pop up in Paul's epistles. He greets them and and wants to write to them, etc. They were a Jewish couple, a married couple. Priscilla was the woman, Aquila the man. Uh, she's often um, listed first, not always, but often. In this case, Aquila first, then Priscilla, but generally it's the other way around. Some some people look on her as a, a very significant female leader in an appropriate way, in the way that Paul would have said, uh, she was not a you know uh, evangelical feminist or something like that. Um, but she was a, a very godly woman, and so he also a godly man. So they were Jewish, a Jewish couple, and the text says that they were there because Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. So they'd been in Rome. Now they come uh, over. Uh, to the Greek peninsula, the, the Peloponnese in Corinth. And they were tent makers, as Paul was. And so there was a connection. I don't know if it came about through the tent making, they met each other, etc. Hmm. But they are two of Paul's great friends and co-workers in the gospel. Let's talk a little more about Paul's tent making. What's the significance of that here in this passage? Tent making has come to symbolize uh, in missions, uh, mission strategy, uh, people who earn a living through what's generally called secular employment or you know non-vocational ministry. Uh, in this case, Paul making tents. Others could be engineers, doctors, um, businessmen, whatever. Uh, and that's how they make their money. But they're also doing ministry uh, with the rest of their time. And so tent making is a symbol for earning your own way through your secular profession while at the same time you're doing work of the gospel. And so tent making is a pretty significant uh, aspect of Paul's life. When Paul says in Acts 20 uh, later, he says, you know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Uh, he means financially, and I think he was referring to tent making. So he had this skill as a tent maker, and it was the way he paid for himself and the way he paid for others. Now, we're going to find in the text when people come uh, to help him, he uh, I think they brought money and he was able to stop tent making. So Paul didn't want to spend much time making tents. He wanted to spend as much time as possible doing 
the work of the ministry. This is also why he advocates in 1 Corinthians 9 that pastors be paid for their ministry, that they that you do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, as he applies it there, that people who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So I don't think he, he would think that tent making was, was a permanent aspect of his own ministry. I think there are some people that really do do it their whole lives, and that's fine too. But the idea for Paul was he wanted to make the most of his hours in a week, and and that would be by preaching the gospel and doing discipleship, you know, training leaders in the evenings, etc. But tent making was a significant part of Paul's life when he first got to Corinth. Now, if he would argue that those who proclaim the gospel ought to uh, be supported financially, why wouldn't he make use of that here initially? Why, why, why would he um, look to um, this other work to help provide for his needs? Yeah, he talks about this at length in 1 Corinthians, and he, and he says the reason I had the right, but I didn't use the right. And it's, in, it's actually in the subset of the meat sacrifice to idol section in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, but in chapter 9, right in the middle of that section, He's basically advocating that that Christians should not flaunt their rights. They shouldn't push their rights. And so you may have every right to eat meat sacrificed to idols and you have that freedom, but you better be careful what you're doing and the effect it has on others. That's what he means there. But as a standalone chapter in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I had the right to support myself financially, but I considered myself a special case. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. And it was very important for me to not put a burden on the churches I was planting initially. And he actually uses strong language saying, I robbed other churches to keep you, mm. O Corinthians, from having to support me financially. Now, what does that mean, robbed? He's, it's tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't mean he actually literally committed a crime. It's that he took support money from other churches so that they wouldn't have to support him. So that's kind of interesting. And I think he saw the interesting ethics there. It wasn't bad. It was just other Christians supported me. You could have and should have at one level. Hmm. But I wouldn't let you do it because I didn't want anyone to rob this boast of mine that, that I, I did. I was not in it for the money. I wanted it to be obvious to everyone that I was not in it for the money. So I didn't take money from you. But in the future, you will most certainly need to support your pastors and, and elders that are in full-time ministry. You need to support them financially. What does verse 4 teach us about Paul's evangelistic and apologetic strategy with the Jews and Greeks. I think what we see in Paul's regular pattern um, in, in the book of Acts, we see that he desired to be evangelistic in the marketplace. So it would be perhaps where he was selling the tents that he'd made last night. Um, and so he would, while he was selling his tents, share the gospel with with Greeks that assembled in the marketplace. In the synagogues on the Sabbath, he would reason with the Jews, unbelieving Jews, and try to prove from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Then in the evenings, as we'll see later in this text, he would meet with disciples. He would meet with Christians and, and, and you know, pour the gospel into them and train them and build up leaders, etc. So he had like a three-legged stool to his ministry life, uh, evangelistic during the day uh, and day by day with the Greeks uh, in the marketplace evangelistic uh, at the Sabbath uh, in the synagogue with the Jews and then disciple-oriented and leadership development-oriented in the evenings with Christians. Andy, in verse 5, we see Silas and Timothy arrive. How would this have been an encouragement to Paul and his ministry here in Corinth? Yeah, the regular pattern that Jesus um, established from the beginning was he sent his apostles out two by two. And the idea was that, you know, you wouldn't be alone in ministry 
that you would have partners, people that knew you, that loved you, that you could share the burdens with, et cetera. And so that's, you know, just a beautiful pattern. Uh, but when he was separated from, uh, from Silas and Timothy and went off by himself to Athens. Remember, he's wandering around in downtown Athens looking at all these idols and all that, and he was greatly distressed. He was also on his own. So all of that stuff he did in Athens, he did on his own. He was alone. And then he comes to Corinth on his own. He's alone and he's looking around. So I think just to have his friends back again, uh, Silas and Timothy are his allies and his co-workers, co-laborers. It must have been a joyful reunion. And obviously he loves Timothy like a son. Uh, and Silas is his co-laborer, etc. So he was delighted. And we read from 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, that when they came, they brought money from Macedonia. So that's the very text I referred to earlier when it says, I robbed churches, mm. uh, etc. That was in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. And he's saying, I did that so that I would not have to uh, rely on you for financial support. So they brought themselves, so friendship, you know, hugs and reunions and, and, and co-labor, but they also brought money and that was helpful. That enabled Paul to stop tent making here in this text and to go full time into the ministry he wanted to do. In verse 5, we really see a, a shift in focus in Paul's character from Paul the tent maker to Paul the preacher. What was Paul's approach to preaching in Corinth? And was there any connection between his experiences in Athens and his commitment to spurn human philosophy in Corinth? Yeah. So this is the very thing I've been saying. Tent making may well be and is a life calling for some um, of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that live in other countries and they use business as a platform for ministry. And we know some people that do that. But for Paul, it was not so. It was a temporary expedient. He wanted to give as much time as possible to the ministry of the word, evangelistically to lost people and discipleship oriented with people who are established Christians. And so he devoted himself exclusively to the ministry of the word. And here it says he testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, in terms of his strategy, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, he resolved to know nothing while he was with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He, he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. He wanted his preaching to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power, not polished rhetoric, technique, impressive uh, demeanor, a, a, a tall, good-looking man who who is very winsome in his personality. Paul was none of that. I don't get the sense that he was like would be like a Hollywood actor or an A-lister or something like that. My guess is he wasn't very appealing physically. And it is, you know, his speaking style was denigrated. His words are contemptible. He's really not a great public speaker. You know, his letters are pretty impressive. But when you listen to him speak, it's not a big moment there. But look at the fruit. So many people come into Christ. And so it's a clear display of the Spirit's power. The Spirit blessed Paul's simple proclamation of Christ and him crucified. And he didn't rely on philosophical wranglings or polish, rhetorical polish and all that. Some of these these philosophers, these traveling itinerant wise men went to rhetorical schools where they would learn how to put a speech together and, and they had certain techniques in doing that. Paul chucked all that into the garbage can. He's like, no, no, I'm going to just be here and preach Christ and him crucified. And we learn in verse 6 that those to whom he was preaching opposed and reviled him. What's the significance of Paul shaking out his clothes in response to this rejection he faced in the Jewish synagogue? And what did he mean when he said, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent? Yeah, this is a very, very significant moment here. Um, first of all, the abuse. You get a sense in, uh, in this section here, uh, Acts 18, 1 through 17, 
Paul was not a a ministry robot. He was not an iron man. He was a human being. He 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 got sick of being persecuted. He got sick of the abuse. I mean, who wouldn't? And there's actually many indications of this. He, he says in Galatians, from no on, for, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You know, I've been beaten for the gospel, so stop giving me a hard time. So I mean, it's just only so much of that that flesh and blood can take. And so here, the Jews are doing the same old thing, like they do in every community. They're resisting and becoming abusive, and yelling at him. And so he shakes his clothes out. This, I think, is no different than shaking the dust off your sandals as you leave a place. You're saying, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. I'm done with you. And then this clear statement, this is, has a prophetic background to it. Your blood be on your own heads. Um, you know, we see this <clears throat> pretty plain, uh, plainly in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God says, if you warn a wicked man about his wickedness and he does not turn from his sin... He will die for his sin, but you will you will be free from that man's blood. Mm. However, if you don't warn him, I'll, you'll have to give an account for his blood. And he says uh, plainly also in, in Ezekiel 18 concerning the wicked person, he says, um, you know, if, if a man does all this wickedness, he does all these evil things, um, you know, he says in, in Ezekiel 18, 13, because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. In other words, he's responsible for his own death. I mean, it's no one's fault but his own. And uh, effectively, that's what Paul's saying here. You're responsible now for your ultimate outcome. This is really straight from Ezekiel. I have warned you, and you're not listening. Mm. Your blood's on your own hands. Mm. There's nothing more I can do. Um, it's similar to when Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' blood. And he says, look, I'm not responsible for his death. And then the Jews said, very famously, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they didn't mean his atoning blood. It's mm-hmm. like, we'll take responsibility for his death. We don't care. I mean, he deserves to die. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Very significant statement. Mm-hmm. We'll take responsibility for the death of Jesus. And Jesus said you would. He said, you are responsible for the death of all the prophets that have ever died from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You will be guilty for all of it when you kill me. Mm. I'm like the summing up of all of the prophetic blood that's ever been shed. So what he's saying here basically is I'm another prophet. This is what I do. I'm a Jewish man. I'm here in the name of the Lord, and I'm giving a prophetic message, and look at you. Just like Stephen said, you always do the same thing. You always resist, Mm. and so your blood's on your own head. Mm. He goes on to say, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Why does he say that, and how does that statement affect these already hostile Jews? Well, he he, give, he, he pops the hood and gives us a, a look under the hood in Romans. He says, I want you to know, as the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in order to stir up my people to jealousy. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want you to see what happens now when I turn to the Gentiles. They're going to listen. And there's going to be a big response and they're going to get healed and there's going to be signs and wonders and there's going to be all kinds of things going on. And that's all going to be happening, but you won't be there. Won't be happening with you. All right. So he tells us why he does that. He wants them to feel jealous. He wants them to know that they're on the outside looking in and all the joy and the, the, the wedding feast is going on inside and they're listening to the silverware clinking against the plates and the goblets being in the laughter and all that. They're on the outside mm. and they need, to, they need to come inside. They need to enter through Christ. So he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he doesn't say this here, but he says, and, and watch what happens when you see me go there. God's going to bless. Mm. 
In verse 7, we meet Titius Justus. Why is it significant for Paul to stay at his home as a Gentile and make that his base of ministry? Yeah, it's very significant because Jews, I don't know, through their own, in my opinion, faulty reading of the kind of separation that God in the Old Covenant wanted between Jews and Gentiles. He never said you can never go in a Gentile home. Those are those are rabbinic regulations that eventually came. And, and it comes into, into the book of Acts where in Acts 11, uh, remember how those Jews were very angry at Peter for going into the home of Cornelius when he preached the gospel there. So they're very upset for going in. And so now but Paul's put that aside. He says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. So I didn't mind going into a Greek home and eating Greek food. None of that mattered. I just wanted to be with this man, Titius Justus, who is a, you know, it's a Roman name and a worshiper of God. He was a God-fearer. He was one of those, those Gentiles who, before Paul came to town, respected the God of the Jews. And then they're, they're pretty ripe fruit at that point for the gospel as well. In the very next verse, we're introduced to another man, Crispus. What does the conversion of Crispus teach us about God's present stance toward the Jewish nation? And what effect did Crispus have on his fellow Corinthians? Yeah, so God is not done with the Jews. Paul says that very plainly in Romans um, 10. I am a, I'm a Jew myself. I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, etc. I, I am a Jew. So if God were done with the Jews, none of them would be converted. Hmm. God doesn't, doesn't uh, convert people he's done with. When God's done with you, you go to hell. But if God is not done with you, he works on you and can save you. And so he's not done with the Jewish nation. In every generation, there's a remnant chosen by grace, Paul says in Romans 11, a remnant chosen by grace. And so Crispus is a Jewish man, the synagogue ruler, who is part of that remnant chosen by grace, a follower of Christ. In verses 9 through 17, we really see the Lord encouraging and protecting Paul, even in the midst of the reviling and the opposition that he faces. What happens in verses 9 and 10? What does this teach us about Paul as well as the Lord and his ministry to his servants who are boldly serving him? Yeah, when we began this podcast today, I said this is one of the – these are the two themes that I want to I want to elevate here, not just the origins of the church at Corinth, which we get – but we also have an insight into what it was like for Paul to be persecuted. The Lord also shows us his heart. The Lord is compassionate. Um, he, Paul does say in Romans chapter 8, all day long we Christians are considered sheep for the slaughter. Uh, we're poured out, Paul says in another place, in Second uh, Timothy 4, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Um, or it says that in Philippians, but also he says, the time has come for my departure. So it says in, in the Psalms, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so it is not a small thing for God to pour us out into death. It's not a minor thing. When martyrs are, are being martyred, God is very focused on that. Jesus stands up to receive Stephen the martyr. He is very intensely interested. He says to Saul, the persecutor, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But here what we have is the Lord Jesus reaching out to Paul in his suffering, reaching out to Paul in his weariness. Uh, that list that we have in Second Corinthians 11 of his beatings and his sufferings and his, and his, the riots he started and, and just what his life was like. And it's like there's only so much of that that a man can take. And so the Lord Jesus reaches out to Paul and sustains him. The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. 
for I am with you mm. and no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so it's a very, very significant, compassionate moment. And then the rest of the section that we're in is the Lord orchestrating things to create a bubble for Paul. Mm. They did attack <laughs> him, but they didn't harm him. There was no harm to Paul, as we'll see in a moment. So Jesus is controlling it and saying, I mean to protect you. Now, we know at some point he's going to pull away that wall of protection and allow Paul to die. And Paul knows that, and, and he um, is not, a, not afraid in Second Timothy to die. He knows that the time has come for his departure. But at this point, that time has not yet come. So the Lord's compassion, his tenderness toward us, his willingness to support us and sustain us, and the fact that Paul's no ministry robot, which, which makes his life even more amazing. He hurt like anybody else. So along with this encouragement, he says, I have many in this city who are my people. What do we learn here uh, about God's perspective on the world uh, that Paul is engaging with the gospel? Yeah, I think theologically the best way to understand this statement, Jesus saying, I have many people in this city. He means elect people who are as yet unconverted. Jesus considers them his. Now, this is a very strong corroboration with John chapter 6 when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And and you get that sense that the Father has already done the giving before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 makes it plain that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. So Jesus knows that. Before he ever entered the world, he knew that there was a set number of elect that were chosen in him. And so they are his. Um, the Father... Uh, gave them to him. And he says that very plainly in John 17 in his high priestly prayer concerning the elect. They were yours, Father. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. So that sequence, first God owns everything. Then he gives them to Jesus, effectively saying, die for them, you know, save them and they can be mine forever because mm. we get brought back to God. You know, He brings us to God. That's what Jesus the mediator does. So the Father gives them to Jesus to save them, clean them up, wash them up with his blood and make them presentable, mm. and then he gives them back to the Father. So they are his elect people. Jesus here is saying, I have people in the city who have, uh, have yet to be converted, and you're going to convert them. Anyway, that in evangelism and in missions, always we are seeking the unconverted elect. We don't mm. know who they are be a lot easier if they had an e on their forehead that we only could see all christians oh that was an unconverted elect guy let's go after him Mm. we don't know we just preach the gospel and some people persecute but other people repent and believe so he says i have many people in the city that's why paul you must keep on speaking and not be silent Mm. because it is by the proclamation of the gospel that those elect people will be saved what an encouragement as well that fact that we know that god is with us will never leave us or forsake us. And also the fact that we're still here means there are still those who need to hear the gospel so we can confidently proclaim him. And that's just what Paul does in verse 11. It says he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And we must believe that this flows from the encouragement that he's just received from God, that yeah. God is with him and that he has people in this city. Yeah, and I think this verse 11 is very significant to show how thorough and patient uh, Paul was in his gospel ministry. You know, there's there's some controversy sometime on the mission field, field with um, church planting movements. Uh, they're seeking rapidity. They're looking for speed. Hmm. And I think they forget how deliberate and careful Paul was to give the full counsel of God's word, as he says in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders, that it was his usual pattern. But let's keep in mind, he also wasn't there for 20 years either. 
He was there for a year and a half and did the work and it was time to move on. He was an itinerating, um, trailblazing, church planting apostle to the Gentiles. He's not going to stay there forever, but he was there for a good long while and he was a very patient, careful workman. And he says this in, in, um, first Corinthians three, he said, you know, by the grace of God, as an expert builder, I laid a foundation. Then I left town and others are building on it. They better be careful how they build. They better build with gold, silver, and costly stones and not wood, hay, or straw because the work is going to be tested with fire. So he's talking about specifically pastors in particular who followed him at Corinth make certain they did good work. But he skillfully laid that foundation in that year and a half. In the final verses of this passage we're looking at today, why did the Jews attack Paul? And how are verses 12 through 17 a fulfillment of the Lord's promise that we just looked at? Yeah, so Jesus is not saying, you know, people aren't going to try to attack you. It's actually better that they do try and they fail. Like, wouldn't you say that, that hmm. Daniel's faith was strengthened by his night uh, with the lions? It's like, we're in a better place now. I'm in a better place. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they were they were strong when hmm. they came out of the fiery furnace. Their faith was stronger than ever. So it's actually better to go through trials that end up like this. This is actually almost humorous, which I'm sure we'll talk about it in a moment. But basically, the Jews hated Paul. Uh, I think they're being fanned into a flame by demons, invisible demons who hated Paul. And so they are doing the usual thing of, of rising up to attack. But they try to do it through a court, through the court. So they go to Gallio, the proconsul, and they've figured all this thing out. Maybe they hired a lawyer or something like that, and they're going to get this guy. They're going to slam Paul. And, uh, and then the, they bring this attack. And verse 13 says what they said. Here's the charge. This man, you know. Paul is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, the law they mean there is their own Mosaic law, which is uh, the weakness in their case as far as Gallio. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment, I'm sure. Yeah, let's talk about Gallio's role here because it is interesting. They, they present their case, and up to this point, they've said, this man basically is breaking the law, and we want you to do something about it. What was Gallio's role and his decision in this matter? Okay, let me sum it up. I couldn't care less. That's Gallio. <laughs> Gallio's the I couldn't care less guy. He really is. He's like, what? All right. They're starting. Paul's about to make his defense in verse 14. So we are a bit robbed here of a great sermon that Paul could have given. But we got plenty of that in the later <laughs> chapters of, of Acts. We're going to get lots of defenses that Paul gives. But uh, Gallio is like, you don't even, Paul, just, you don't even, let me, let me do this. All right. Gallio speaks to the Jews. If you Jews are making a complaint about something, <laughs> misdemeanor or some serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. Now think about what he's saying. The Jews are saying, Paul is persuading us to worship God mm. contrary to God's law. Galileo is saying, that doesn't matter. It's like, no, actually it does. It's just that the Jews are wrong. Mm. But Galileo is wrong too. Galileo just doesn't care. He's got a jurisdiction and it has to do with Roman law. And he doesn't care about their Jewish problems. So to mm. continue, he says, since it involves questions about uh, words and names and your own law, in other words, not my law, but your own law, then settle the matter yourselves. I am not going to be a judge of such things. So he evicts them from court. So that's basically the secular world not giving a flip about theology, saying, look, that has nothing to do with me. So Gallio has now thrown them out of court. What do the Jews do after he throws them out? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage we've been looking at? Right. Well, verse 17 says, they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. 
So it's, it's just human nature here, unconverted, unregenerate human nature and all of its ugliness. Um, they have to fight someone. They're angry. They're fighting each other. They're, this is the world. This is the world that Jesus came to save, uh, a world of, of bitterness and hatred and violence and sinful rage. And then also in Galilee, it's part of a world, world of indifference and nothing to do with me. Hmm. Why do I care? And uh, so you see all of that. And then final thoughts is just as I look at this passage, what, what shines forth uh, is also what I said at the beginning. We see the Apostle Paul, an incredibly courageous, bold, consistent witness of Christ, but he's just a man. He's a human being. And just getting beaten on and persecuted and arrested and the stress from that time and time again wears on him. And so – we see that, that Paul is a remarkable person in terms of his perseverance, but he's only a human being. But then even more importantly, we see the Lord's tender care for him and his willingness to filter out trials and to protect him. Now, we know that he eventually is going to pour Paul out like a drink offering. He's going to be martyred. And so when the time comes, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He's going to use that. But in the meantime, the Lord wisely and graciously filters the trials and temptations to enable the gospel to keep going forward. Well, this has been episode 36 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 37 entitled Paul's Co-Laborers for Christ, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.